Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. Go ahead and take a seat. Hey, Resonate Church, so great to be with you this evening. I hope you're doing well. Uh, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Ben. I get to serve as a pastor here at Resonate Church, and uh, really, really excited to be with you tonight. We live uh, in an incredibly broken and fractured world. Uh, Nearly every day for the past few weeks, we're inundated with new reports detailing the heinous and atrocious acts carried out by the terrorist organization Hamas. Disturbing numbers of civilians in the Middle East have lost their lives, their loved ones. Uh, Women and children have been displaced or abducted and have become victims of unspeakable evils. Uh, As a church, we're begging the Prince of Peace, King Jesus, to bring about his peace and come quickly. Uh, and as, as if that's not enough, um, ongoing tensions between Russia and Ukraine persist with tomorrow marking the 600th day of their conflict, if you can believe that. Uh, the future of the global economic landscape looks uncertain with challenges rising due to trade disputes, lingering pandemic-related issues, inflation concerns, and supply chains disruptions. I could go on for hours. Uh, just Googling world news, it takes some resilience and grit. It's, it's hard for me not to close my laptop when I search what's happening in the world. We live in an incredibly broken and fractured world. And tonight, I don't think any of us need convincing of this. Nobody needs convincing of this. We realize that things have gone tragically wrong. And we would say while there are definite glimpses of, of beauty and goodness and grace in the world, we realize that it's marred, it's fractured, it's broken. And so the question for us tonight as we sit here in this little auditorium on a public university in the state of Oregon, the question that lays before us is what does God have to say about all of it? What does God have to say about all of it? Um, the short answer tonight is a lot. Uh, Over the years, we've said that our our prayer as a church, one of our prayers as a church, is that we would see people experience life-changing community and world-changing purpose, all because of Jesus. We believe Jesus actually offers life-changing community in his church and at the same time, world-changing purpose. And we landed on the phrase world-changing purpose because we look at what's happening in our world and we believe that God has something better to offer. Because we look at the depression, the anxiety, the sexual abuse, the substance abuse in our community here locally, and we believe that God wants to change people in Oregon for the better. We look at the headlines, the corruption, the poverty, the injustice in the world, and we believe God wants to change people around the globe for the better. This isn't just some cute phrase. We literally believe that because of Jesus, it is possible to experience world-changing purpose. 
Uh, long-winded introduction, but, but just to name a few. In the last 2,000 years, God has regularly used ordinary followers of Jesus to profoundly alter the course of history itself. So just to name a few in recent history, I'm going to rattle these off. Only got a couple minutes here. William Wilberforce, the British politician who hand-gathered one million British signatures to end slavery in Great Britain, was a devout follower of Jesus whose faith compelled him to do such a thing. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Stowe, John Brown, William Lloyd Garrison all led the way for the abolition of slavery in the United States based on their serious Christian faith. Nelson Mandela, the Methodist, and Desmond Tutu, the Anglican, did so in South Africa. Frances Willard was a devout Christian woman and leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Her efforts paved the way for women to have the right to vote in America and raise the age of sexual consent from 10 to 16 years old. Can you believe that? Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Baptist pastor, led the way for civil rights in the United States. And finally, the Archbishop Oscar Romero led the way against the injustice and violence of the military government in El Salvador. Uh, These are not stories of privatized, keep-it-to-myself, inconsequential faith. No. These are men and women who flipped the world upside down because of Christ in them. So we're here to talk about that tonight. Uh, two weeks ago, we kicked off the fall with a mini-series on the balanced Christian life uh, to give us a basic framework for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to experience the balanced life that Jesus offers. And we, we've seen this for two weeks now. We're going to look at it one more time tonight. Exposited uh, this kind of shape, this triangle shape we've been looking at from a day in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. It's going to be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Luke 6, day in the life of Jesus, 12 through 19. We've seen this a bunch. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. And it lists out the twelve. Uh, Verse 17, skipping ahead. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. We've looked at this passage for the last seven years in our church, and we've created like a discipleship tool, this shape, this triangle around it. And so I brought it with me again. And and just quick recap, we've seen this for the past three weeks. Uh, We see the balanced Christian life is comprised of these three uh, vertices on this triangle. We see up. Jesus has a real and thriving love relationship with his heavenly father. shows us that we're meant to have a real and thriving relationship with the God of the universe who made us. We see that points down to in, that God made us to experience relationships with people and community inside his church. And then, that's not all, it flows. You see the arrows designate that this is meant to all work together. Uh, In is meant to lead to out. In is meant to lead to out, that, that we would have a purpose that's bigger than us. Jesus goes out to people who don't yet follow him, and he loves them. He, he heals them. He ministers to them. And so tonight, uh, again, obviously, we're, we're looking at this third part, this, this out component um, that we see in verses 17 through 19. And, uh, and again, j- just a few key things I want to say about this. Uh, these are all meant to flow from each other. So we said in week one, if you miss up, if you miss getting a connection with the God who loves you, then you're going to end up making community your God. 
Or you're, you're going to end up uh, trying to go out and, and change a bunch of people and maybe uh, social justice in the world, and that's really good, but maybe don't have a regenerated heart and regenerated desires in you. Um, and then we said last week that in is significant, that we're not meant to go and follow Jesus alone, but he's given us each other. And, and we see that in is meant to lead to out through the arrows. And, and just the one thing I want to say on this, this isn't always the case. Uh, this certainly, I, I don't mean this in like a harsh way or an arrogant way, but more often than not, um, broadly speaking, if there's ever a typical imbalance in the life of Christians or in entire churches, um, it, it's usually because out is missing. So triangles might not look like the isosceles. Is that isosceles? Is, that, is it singular or plural? Equilateral. Equilateral. Oh, man, I'm way off. <laughs> I, mean, I got to go back to geometry, bro. Um, but, it, but it might end up looking like this. I, I have a different triangle, a right triangle, I think. Right triangle? Yes. 90 degrees? Yeah. Yeah. It might end up looking like this. This is what a lot of uh, churches, a lot of lives of Christians end up looking like. There's a strong up maybe, strong worship, strong connection to God, strong in. We're hanging out with other people who believe the same thing that we believe, uh, but there's no purpose. There's, there's no out. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, a pastor and theologian, once said this, uh, community, community without mission, community without out, it just leads to codependency. So it's vital, it's crucial for us to understand. And I don't think any of us here tonight, if we're trying to take our faith seriously, if we're trying to take our lives seriously, would say, I want to live a life that has zero consequences. What I mean by that, I want to live a life that has no impact. I want to live a life that has no legacy. I want to live a life that never produces anything out of it. None of us want that. We want to live lives that produce consequence for good. So what we're going to do tonight is look to a passage in scripture from perhaps the most consequential follower of Jesus the entire world's ever seen, uh, the (laughs) Apostle Paul. So we'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 9, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. You can either uh, look it up on your phone or it'll continue to be behind the screen, uh, behind me on the screen up here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And the context here is the Apostle Paul, uh, who's who's traveling around uh, all these regions, planting churches, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, Paul writes to the specific church in uh, the region of Corinth. And uh, the Holy Spirit himself says through Paul, starting in verse 19, chapter 9, says this. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means... I might save some. And he ends, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Uh, This, friends, tonight is one of the most um, comprehensive displays of the heart of out. What what does the heart of out look like? I think this is one, one of the most comprehensive displays of this in all the New Testament. 
Uh, to be clear, just to talk about this little man and, and, and talk about what this means, uh, Paul is not uh, literally saying he's going to abandon his faith in Jesus and go back to practicing Judaism. Uh, he's using hyperbole. Paul's not literally saying he'll become like the pagans or become like non-believers and just willfully go on sinning so that he kind of like looks like the culture. No, he's not saying that. He's using hyperbole. If we're not careful, we'll read this passage and we'll think, man, is, is Paul like a Christian chameleon? Is he just kind of... If he hangs out with these people, he looks like them. And then if he hangs out with these people, he looks like them. He has no real reverence for the holiness of God and no real reverence for... No, it's not what Paul is like. I would argue because of how seriously Paul takes his faith, he has this heart. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'll do whatever it takes besides sinning and disobeying the Lord Jesus to lower barriers that I might serve all people. You catch that? He's saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes besides sinning and disobeying the Lord Jesus to lower barriers so that I can serve all people, no matter what they look like, even those who don't look like me, even those who don't live like me. And he gives us his reason why. And his reason why, he repeats it over and over again, is so that I might win some to Christ. He's saying, I'm doing all of this so that by my service and by my message, people would respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's why he's doing it. That's why he's doing it. And, and this, friends, is at the heart of how Christians are called to live in the world. This is at the heart of how Christians are called to live. This is thinking about, caring for, doing for, talking to others, especially when they don't believe like you believe. You tracking. It's it's thinking about, caring for, doing for, talking to others, especially when they don't believe what you believe. And the reason for this is because that's exactly how Jesus has operated towards you, isn't it? He came towards you before you had any concern for him, if you're a Christian. He made the first move of love towards you before you ever loved him. That's how he's loved you. So in this, uh, here's what we're going to do tonight, just real briefly. We're going to break this up, the heartbeat of out. Again, thinking about others, caring for others, having this purpose into two categories. And the two categories are gospel action and gospel proclamation. So first one is gospel action. Gospel action. And I think one of the most significant um, Examples of gospel action is exposed when you look at church history and actually the, the beginning of Christianity itself. When you look at the first five um, centuries of, of the church. <clears throat> uh, in a book called The Rise of Christianity, historian Rodney Stark maps out exactly how Jesus and the movement that followed in his wake turned into what it is today. Uh, the world's largest and most diverse religion. And... Uh, in a moment, I'm actually going to throw a chart on the screen that kind of maps out the timeline for the first few centuries after Jesus um, lived, died, and rose. Most scholars would estimate that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified between 31 and 35 AD. So, you see this in a second. 31, 35 AD, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Um, uh, Christians believe Jesus rose out from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. In the year 40, I'll throw this map on the screen, or Daisy will. In the year 40, Rodney Stark estimates that there would have been about 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire at that time. Too small to even map a percentage on, okay? So the year 40, 
maybe give or take five, six, seven years after Jesus, uh, crucifixion, resurrection, maybe, maybe a thousand Christians, so minuscule, so tiny. Uh, and if you know your church history at all, you'll know that there's a significant jump in percentage and ch- jump in growth in Christianity in the year 312. Um, from 300 to 350, you see this massive growth. Christianity goes from being around 10% to the Roman Empire to over 50% of the Roman Empire. And if you know your history, you'll know that in 312, Emperor Constantine became a Christian and ended governmental persecution of Christians in the year following. But uh, there's more to the story. And you'll see where I'm going with this. There's more to the story. History records that there were two enormous epidemics, two plagues that actually hit the Roman Empire, one in 165 and one in the year 251. Um, Both lasted 15 to 20 years. And these were both pre-Constantine, right? Pre-Emperor Constantine, pre-the emperor becoming a Christian, um, all before that. And interestingly enough, you see a surge in growth from the year 250 to the year 300. You see Christianity goes from just under 2% of the Roman Empire to just to 10% in literally 50 years. And we go, how did that happen? How did that growth happen? And that's what Rodney Stark is trying to understand in his book. And so what he begins to talk about is that cities in the second and third century were places of great loss. Because if you live in an urban context in the second and third century, they're crowded, they're crime-filled, they're filthy, they're disease-ridden. There's no such thing as soap. There's no such thing as sanitation. So during the first epidemic in 165, it was tragic. Uh, Historians um, tend to think that uh, after the 15 years of the first epidemic in 165, 30% of the Roman Empire died to the disease. 30% wiped out within 15 years. Uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius wrote that mortality was so great that caravans of carts and wagons would literally be hauling the dead out of the city day by day. It was terrible. So fear, panic, and anxiety swept the Greco-Roman world for those 15 years, 165, and then it happened again 100 years later in 251. Um, And what's significant, the, the reason I bring this up, what's significant about this is that when they hit, when these epidemics hit, anyone who could because there was evidence that the disease spread through contact, anyone who could would leave the cities. They would get out. They would bail. So there's stories of families literally abandoning families to say, sorry, I love you, Grandma, but I'm out of here because I'm not trying to get sick. (laughs) There's there's one story I read of a doctor who said, I'm going to leave the city to get out and go to my private home far away so that I can just camp out there for 20 years, wait for this thing to pass, and then come back. He's a doctor for crying out loud. But but there's a real sense of fear and anxiety. But history records that the only group of people, the one significant demographic who didn't flee the cities but stayed were the Christians. The Christians stayed. They didn't bail. They didn't run away. And Christians not only cared for each other, they also cared for the pagans and the non-believers around them. And this did mean that some Christians died. But, but it also meant that... Um, a lot of people receive care from these Christians and history records that if someone just got like food and shelter and water, they'd have a 50% chance of getting better and getting healthy. What ended up happening in the Roman empire, especially after that second epidemic is that both biologically and through care and concern for people who didn't yet know Jesus, the church exploded. The church exploded. 
pagans professed faith in Jesus and were converted, uh, began following him. You see, Christians didn't stay in the city. They didn't do this because of a church growth strategy. They didn't do it uh, because they thought that that would be like the most strategic thing for them to help, to help reach the world. No, they did it because that's what their Savior did for them. The Christians stayed in their cities. Jesus left the eternal comforts of heaven and stepped into our broken world to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so Christians said, that's what I'm going to do. Jesus didn't just stay up in heaven thinking about himself and think self-protection. Um, I'm going to think about myself primarily. No, Jesus left the comforts of heaven to think about others. And that's what he models for us to do <clears throat> as well. So, so really clearly, the way of Jesus is not self-preservation, self-protection, and selfish individualism. The way of Jesus is others' preservation, self-sacrifice, and a loving collectivism. Um, the Bible describes out in the way of Jesus this gospel action really clearly throughout the New Testament. We see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said, You should look like light in darkness. That's what your life should look like. And people should see your life and say, Huh, that's interesting. I want to I think about what that means for my relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says we're, we are God's handiwork. We're his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is gospel action. Um, in our church's history, what this has looked like is church planting. Uh, we have seen... Um, uh, in our history, graduates moving, um, students transferring, people actually getting their lives and, and taking their lives and, and selling belongings and, and moving to different places so that people who don't know Jesus can have a fair shake at him and experiencing his church. Uh, locally, this has looked like serving the houseless in Salem. We've had owners, members of our church and villages go and do that. This looks like uh, owners here volunteering for women's pregnancy centers. This looks like local businesses operating with uh, kingdom mindsets. We have people in our church doing that. This looks like serve trips. We've taken people and sent them to the least of these in urban cities like L.A. and internationally in Mexico. And, and, then, and in the future, we, we, like, we, we see... Um, we see realities where, where maybe so that we, we could see counseling centers started by Christians in our, in our context. Maybe so that, that the issue with the foster care system and, and there being s- such a need for children in that system that Christians would step up and say, I'm gonna do something about, about that. And families would adopt and step into the foster care programs. And there's so much more, right? But this is gospel action. Gospel action. Uh, Second side of this is gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation. So we see that gospel action isn't the full picture. We we see both gospel action and gospel proclamation. We see these things going hand in hand. We see that we have to tell the story with words. Here's what Romans chapter 10 says. If you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So there's something to know and believe. And what you have to know and believe in order to be saved, in order to be reconciled to God, is that Jesus is Lord. He lived, died, and he rose to conquer sin, death, and the devil. 
You have to believe that. You have to know that. So he goes on. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, underline this. How then? How then? Can they call on the one they haven't believed in? How can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And now can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, the, the word gospel literally means good news. The word gospel literally means good news. In, in ancient times, someone who would preach the gospel would be someone who would see a victory on the front lines of the battle and would run back to the king, would run back to the city to say, we have victory, we won, good news. It's good news. So the gospel of Jesus, the good news about what Jesus has done is not good advice, it's not good vibes. It's good news. It's what Jesus has done for sinners and sufferers. It's good news. And good news has to be shared with words. It has to be spoken, proclaimed. Imagine you turn on the news, the five o'clock news, and your TV's on mute. How goofy would that be? You can't receive the news without verbal communication. You have to speak the good news. Uh, there's a famous quote that, that goes something like this. You, you may have heard it before. The famous quote says this, preach the gospel always and use words when necessary. Preach the gospel always and use words when necessary. That's a bad quote. It's a good quote in the sense that our gospel actions should match our gospel proclamation, but you can't preach the gospel without words. Your good and kind acts of service to your neighbor doesn't tell them that God became a man and died on a cross for them. You have to proclaim the news with words. So here's, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I brought a video with me um, from a guy named Pendulet. Aging myself a little bit, but there was a magician duo when I was a kid, kind of, growing up. Penn and Teller. Yeah? No? Just me? Yep, I'm old. Welcome. Uh, Pendulet, half of the magician duo, Penn and Teller. Pendulet, for years and years and years and years, this magician has been publicly outspoken about his atheism. About his atheism. Uh, but a few years ago, he recorded this video. Check out the screen. I'm talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, you know, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show 
and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. But he said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. A little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible. The, the top YouTube comment on that video says, I know you don't know this, Mr. Gillette, but you just preached the best five-minute sermon we've ever heard. <laughs> An atheist, an unregenerate, not filled with the Holy Spirit, magician, saying the same thing that Romans 10 says. If you're confident you do have access to eternal life and that you've been rescued from damnation, which Christians believe, then how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them? Christian, let me ask you, when's the last time you took an inventory of all the people in your life who don't know and love Jesus and thought about 
what it means for you to be in their life. Have you thought about that? It's okay if you haven't, there's grace. But when's the last time? If, if we believe, which we do, that God is sovereign, then it, then it might be so that God has specifically placed you in that person's life who doesn't yet know Jesus just so that he, begin, he could begin to reveal himself to them through you and what you say to them. Friends, we should share the gospel so often with our words in such a way that even if the people we share the gospel with reject Jesus, they walk away wishing that it were true. That's how often the gospel should be proclaimed from our mouths to people who don't yet know him. And to end tonight, I just want to give us the gospel. What is the gospel? We've been talking about this. What's the good news? The gospel is this. The gospel is the announcement. It's the news that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that Jesus came to earth to rescue us from sin and brokenness. It's the news that tells us that God is just and will not let injustice go unanswered. So for anyone who's committed any sin against him, he's just, he won't let injustice go unanswered. But it also tells us that God is so loving and so merciful that he took the judgment that we deserve on himself. He took the death that should come to us on himself so that we wouldn't have to. And then Jesus overcame death itself, defeated death from uh, death itself, and on the third day resurrected and invites us into life with him now and for forever. And this isn't myth, it's not legend, this is a historical event, the question is, how will anyone know if they're not told? How will anyone know if they're not told? So friend, my hope for you, my hope is that you will know and understand the gospel. That you'll know and understand the gospel. And that the gospel will be the thing that shapes your entire life. The gospel is not the, the foundations of Christianity, uh, just the ABCs of Christianity. It is Christianity. And our hope is that you'll see it lived out and you will hear it explained here on Sundays and dozens and dozens and dozens of times between Sundays. So if you're not a Christian tonight, if you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, you want to hear the gospel explained or you have questions, then ask the person who invited you because I guarantee you they can explain. And if you are a Christian, maybe you're newer to our church, uh, our, part of our goal and our calling, we believe, like my calling as a pastor is to help equip you to communicate the gospel, to help equip you to do this. And to make it really clear, we don't do this to earn God's favor. We don't like uh, go share the gospel and do all these things so that God will love us more. No, we do it because we already have his favor. We do it because he's already freely given it to us in his son. We don't do this out of guilt. We do it because of his glory. That's the purpose we're meant to live for. So two questions for you. I uh, just want to invite you to either think about these, maybe journal uh, about these. You can write on your notes app or something. Two questions are this. How do you personally 
wish to see Christians living out in our culture. What are the injustices you see around you that make you go, man, the church needs to do something about that? How do you wish to see Christians living out in our culture? Second question, how well do you know and can you communicate the good news of of Jesus and what he's done? So two questions, we'll leave them up there. Take a couple minutes, maybe journal about these, process them, just think about them. And then I'll close this out in a second.